The following audio is from LaGrange Church of Christ, located in Texas. For more information about LaGrange Church of Christ, please visit our website at www.lagrangecoc.com. Um, Acts chapter 2, and I want to begin reading in, in verse 29 this morning. So it says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so Acts 2 is one of the great chapters of the Bible. I mean, you could do a whole series just on this chapter. And we've sat with this text for the last two weeks, and we're going to set with it once again this morning uh, before we move on to other things in the book of Acts. And so far, we've noticed a couple things. We we have noticed that that God is breaking into the world in an an extraordinary way. He's doing something big. He's he's reversing the curse of Babylon. In God's plan, sin will not have the last word. And God is going to make all things right. And he begins by sending Jesus. Jesus. God takes on flesh. God comes to earth. And God's people have been longing for something like this. And now it's finally happening. And so there are big things going on in Acts 2. But God has not forgotten about individuals. And so one of the the main characters in the first part of Acts is Peter. And if you read the Gospels, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you read the book of Acts, which is the continuation of that story, you're going to notice something. You're going to notice some drastic 
changes in the life of Peter. This, this great leader in Acts chapter 2 was once someone who struggled with his faith and even denied Jesus. But when you open up the pages of the book of Acts, you discover that Peter is a new person. His life has been changed. Even when God is doing great things in the world, he still has time for you and me. And we serve a God who cares for individuals. He cares for people like Peter. And we see that this apostle's life is transformed because he continues to follow God and God continues to work in his life. There are so many things that that we could focus on in Acts 2. And when I step back for a moment and I look at this chapter, what I see is a great symphony. It is a masterpiece. It's a masterpiece that is composed of different parts, different movements. If you've studied classical music, you know that, that there's different movements within these great pieces of music. And so as we look at the end of the chapter, uh, there are three distinct movements, and here's what they are. After Peter quotes from the book of Joel, he then dives into this sermon, and he presents the gospel to all who are willing to listen. Next is the response. After hearing the gospel that is presented by Peter, uh, the people want to know, what what do we do? And Peter tells them to repent and be baptized, and 3,000 were saved on that day. But that's not the end. You you have the, the very last few verses in the book of Acts, which presents one of the most beautiful pictures of the church in the Bible. It is a church that is perfectly united. And so these are the three movements of this beautiful symphony that Luke gives us. And these are what we want to pay attention to as we make our way through this magnificent chapter. Gospel, response, and church. And let's begin with the first one. Let's begin with gospel. This is where Peter preaches his sermon. And Peter preaches the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, if you want to know what the gospel is, all you have to do is look at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. He presents the gospel. The gospel is good news. It is the proclamation of an event. And this word was used in two ways in the ancient world. First of all, it meant something to do with the Jewish people. In the book of Isaiah, it meant that God was coming and God was going to act in the world. But it was also used in a common way. And it was used to announce the reign of a king or an emperor. And the writers of the New Testament take both of these definitions and they apply it to Jesus. Paul uses both of these definitions to describe Jesus in Romans 1, verses 3 and 4. And this is also the basis of Peter's sermon in Acts 2. Often, the the most important part of a sermon comes at the end. And this is true of Peter's sermon. The last sentence 
in his sermon is the climax. It's the thesis statement. It's where he's going the whole time. And so if we want to know what the gospel is, if we want to know what Peter's sermon is all about, we have it in this last sentence. Acts 2 and verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, both Lord and Christ or Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so Peter's sermon has two points. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Messiah. What, what does he mean by this? Well, he begins by telling his audience that God is working in the world, that God is up to something. And this is evident. They, they can see it from all the miraculous events that are happening. They know something's going on. What is God doing? Well, it's not just that he's healing people and he's setting people free and, and people are speaking in languages that, that they had never studied. Something else is happening. Something bigger is happening. And it has to do with Jesus of Nazareth. And so first, Peter connects Jesus to David. Why? Well, this is to prove that Jesus is the king that everyone had been looking for. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He's the Christ. He is the one to come and to save Israel. Now, the Jewish people expected the Messiah to be a king just like David. And Jesus was this. But he was also something more. And Peter's second point is a radical claim. Not only is Jesus king, something they expected, something they were looking for, but he's also God. And he proves this by pointing to the resurrection. Jesus was crucified on a cross, but he did not stay dead. And when Isaiah, the prophet, spoke long ago about God coming with us, or God being with us, the people of Israel kind of assumed that this meant inaction. They thought that God was going to act in the world in some way. But no, God took on flesh. God came to earth. And Peter tells the crowd, God was in your very midst and you crucified him. Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. He is both King and God. And this is good news. This changes everything. It shifts our allegiance. It shifts our perspective. Because you see, the people in Jesus' day thought, you know, the real powers were Rome and the religious authorities, sort of the leaders of the Jewish faith. But the cross showed how corrupt these institutions really were. You see, Rome was known for justice, but the cross exposed them for who they really were. They lacked true justice. The religious authorities were known 
for righteousness. But they sent an innocent man to the cross. And so the power that Rome and the religious authorities claimed to have was a facade. And the cross exposed them. But the problem was not just with institutions. Peter, in his sermon, says, you crucified Jesus. He points to the crowd. He says, you're guilty. We all sin. There are parts of each of us that we're not proud of. There are parts of each of us that are not good. We are all guilty. And this is why Peter ends his sermon with this statement. Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, but he was murdered. And we are all somewhat responsible for that. It was our sins that put him on that cross. Peter says this and then he sits down. He, you know, drops the mic and he's through. His sermon's over. He lets them and us, 2,000 years later, contemplate this new information. Now imagine being told that God was right here in your midst. God was here last week and he was here the week before. He sat in the back. But no one noticed him. You know, we were too busy talking to our friends, and, and he looked a little strange. Not only that, uh, the authorities came looking for him, and we turned him over. And they sent him to death row, and he was injected with a lethal dose of chemicals. And God was here, and we helped kill him. His blood is on our hands. And the people that Peter is preaching to have just been told that the one that they were looking for, the Messiah, he was here. And not only was he king, he was also God. But you killed him. And this is how Peter ends his sermon. And that leads to the next movement. Uh, the people who heard this were cut to the heart. And then they want to know what to do. And so Peter finishes his sermon and sort of steps away. And they say, wait a minute, Peter. Uh, what should we do? And Peter obliges and he tells them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we sometimes want to connect Acts 2.38 uh, to the sermon. But, but this is a new conversation here. Peter ends his sermon in verse 36. And obviously, the, the people are moved. Uh, they're convicted. They, they want to know what to do next. And it's only after they ask that Peter tells them what to do. And what Peter says in this verse is of utmost importance. It is essential to salvation. 
But Peter focuses his entire message, his entire sermon on Jesus. And I think we could learn something from Peter about how we should present the gospel. The most important thing that we can talk about is Jesus. Peter's entire sermon is about Jesus. He offers only one sentence about what we should do to be saved. And that comes after the sermon. Now, sometimes we'll do the reverse. We'll spend an entire sermon talking about us and what we are to do. And we'll never mention Jesus. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus has come to earth. And when we talk about anything more than Jesus, we are not presenting the gospel like it should be presented. Jesus is the heart of the gospel, and he should always be the heart of our message. And when the gospel is presented and Jesus is preached, people will be moved. Their hearts will be pricked. The good news is life-changing, and, and the people whom Peter preached to on the day of Pentecost wanted to change their lives. But they didn't know how. And so Peter tells them to do two things. He tells them to repent. This means to change directions. Or sometimes it can be translated to mean to turn around, to, to go another way. And so the people he's speaking to had set themselves on a path that was leading to destruction. Um, it, it already caused a lot of destruction. They, they had murdered God. And they may have not realized this until they heard Peter's sermon on that day, but they realize it now. And Peter says, the first thing you need to do is change the path you are on. It's not a good path. You're not going the right way. You need to start following God. You need to choose his path and follow his ways because it leads to life. And second, you need to be baptized. Repentance changes the direction of your life, but baptism gives you a new life. It takes care of, of all the mistakes that you made in the past. And it helps you to live into this new direction that you have chosen. How so? Well, when we are baptized, our sins are forgiven. They are washed away. We are given a clean slate. We get to start all over again. Also, when we are baptized, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so God's Spirit now resides in us, and He helps to transform us into the person that God wants us to be. And this is salvation. And this is what the crowd was seeking on that day. And these blessings are so amazing that 3,000 people gave their life to Christ on that day. They responded to the gospel. They repented and they were baptized. And when they did this, God added them to the church. And this leads to our final movement in the book of Acts. In the last verses of this chapter, we are given a picture of what the church can be and what the church should be. 
And so I want you to really pay attention to these words and, and listen to what Luke records here. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is powerful. This is what we should aspire to be. This is a passage that we should return to from time to time to remind ourselves of our purpose as a body of believers. In verse 42, Luke identifies four marks of the church. Every church should have these four things. The apostles' teaching. This is not our teaching. This is not your favorite preacher's teaching. This is the apostles' teaching. It's what we find in the sermons of Peter and Paul. It's what we find in the letters of Peter and Paul. It's what we find in the four gospels, which were either written by an apostle or a companion of an apostle. This is the church. This is the church's doctrine. And second, fellowship. There must be some kind of fellowship. And we sometimes look at fellowship and we want to relegate it as if it's less important than the other things we do. Well, you know, we have the Lord's Supper and we have the sermon and we pray and then we have fellowship over here. Um, but here in Acts, fellowship is mentioned between the apostles' teaching and the Lord's Supper. So you have the apostles' teaching, you have the Lord's Supper. Right there in the middle, fellowship. Fellowship is essential to the church. You cannot be a church without fellowship. And so what we do before and after services, when we're together and we're having these conversations and we're talking to one another, that is important. What we do at our potluck meals is important. What we do when we may meet together throughout the week um, as Christians, to have a meal or something else. That is important to the health of the church. We must have fellowship. And then he mentions the breaking of bread. And this is a phrase that is sometimes used by Luke to describe the Lord's Supper. We have to be careful because it doesn't always describe the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it describes an ordinary meal. But, but here it seems to describe what we would call the Lord's Supper. And this is one of the main reasons that, that we come together on Sunday morning. And for many years, the Lord's Supper was the center of worship. Now we have sort of shifted a little bit and we've made the sermon the center of our worship. But we need to be very careful that we don't allow anything to overshadow what we do here at the table. Um, this was the only act of worship that was instituted by Jesus himself. 
It is an act of grace that connects us with our Lord and Savior and his death that makes forgiveness of sins possible. Finally, he mentions prayer. And if we're going to be a people that makes a difference in this world, then we're going to have to spend much time on our knees. The one thing that will absolutely make a difference in our lives and in the lives of others is prayer. You know, we like to complain about things. I I like to complain about things, you know, from time to time. We complain about our country. We complain about politicians. We complain about different things that are happening in our lives. Uh, We like to complain about people that sort of get on our nerves, you know. And I think we should have a rule that says we're not allowed to complain about anything until we have prayed about it. Because complaining is not going to get us anywhere. We can complain all day, all night. It's not going to lead to anything. But prayer, prayer can change the world. So we need to spend more time in prayer. And so these four things are the marks of a church But what was this early church really like? What are we supposed to be like? And the answer to this question can be summed up in one verse, Acts 2 and verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. What does it mean to be together and have all things in common? It means you're a family. And sometimes we'll say something about, you know, our church family. But the early Christians, they really believed it. They were together. They didn't just meet for one hour a week, you know. They were together, Luke says, every day. And not only that, they they shared what they had. This is a description of a family. People who see each other every day and they share things. Now, if I were to go into my kitchen and to start making me a sandwich, um, Laura doesn't try to come in and say, don't use that bread. That's my bread. You know, Uh, at least she hasn't yet, you know. Um, Why? Because it's the family's bread. You know, it's shared among us. And we need to understand what's being taught in this passage. So some have looked at this passage and they said, you know, well, it teaches communism. Others have looked at it and tried to dismiss it altogether. We're just going to ignore it, just kind of pretend it's not there, and let's move on to something else. First of all, this passage is not teaching communism. It says nothing about the government. It says nothing about Rome. It says nothing about giving up your rights to what you have or own. What this passage does teach is sacrifice. We, as followers of Jesus, make the choice to give to others, even if it hurts us, even if it means that that we have to tighten our belts a little bit. Why? Because we're Jesus people and we follow in his footsteps. This week, I I was watching a a movie called Two Days and One Night. Uh, Don't go out and try to rent it. You probably won't like it, but but I enjoyed it. Um, And and it's the story of a a woman who loses her job, but her boss gives her a chance to get it back. 
And he's going to allow the company to take a vote. And they must either choose between receiving a large bonus that they've been promised or hiring this woman back. You can't have both. You have to choose. And so it's a small company, you know, that they have to make these tough decisions. And throughout the movie, this woman goes and she visits everyone in the company to see if they will vote for her. And it's a really interesting character study. And some of the people are eager to help her. Yes, you know, uh, it's terrible that you've lost your job and you need to provide for your family. I'll give up my bonus. I'll, I'll help you. And some of them are not. Some of them are, are just mean. No, I want the money. Uh, I don't care about you. And there are some people in the film who want to help, but they really really need the money. They need to pay the bills. They need to send their kids to school. And she visits one man and he says this, you know, my family could really use the money. And I know that if I vote for you, I'm going to be persecuted at work by all those people who want the money. But this is what God wants me to do. What is described in Acts 2.44 is a decision that we make. It's not an easy decision. It might mean sacrifice on our behalf. It might even mean persecution in some circumstances. But it's the right thing to do. It's what God wants us to do. It's the way of Jesus, and we do it because we're family. And so this morning, I want you to know that you have a family. You have a family that loves you. You have a family that is willing to sacrifice for you. You have a family that is in your corner. And so don't leave here this morning feeling alone. Don't leave here feeling discouraged. We are Jesus people and we are in this together. We are brothers and sisters. We are mothers and fathers. We are sons and daughters. We are in this together, united by our faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to you at this time uh, thanking you for this day. Thanking you for this opportunity to study your word. To learn about who we are and who we should be. We're amazed by this. Sometimes we're overwhelmed. Sometimes we look at what seems to be a perfect picture of the church in the last part of Acts, and we know that we're far from perfect. But we are encouraged that you're on our side. And that you are working in our lives to transform us into this ideal that we read about. And we're also encouraged to know that we have a family. 
that we have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters right here in this building. People who love us, people who are willing to sacrifice for us, people who are for us. Father, most of all, we're thankful for your son. We're thankful for that sacrifice that he made for us, a sacrifice that, that we're partly responsible for. But we also know that he did it because he loves us. We pray this in his name. Amen.